This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly is starting right now. We are staring into the barrel of the gun. We've been sticking the can down the road for 20 years with North Korea, and it's coming home to roost. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe, host of Ian Weekly, and in this podcast, we're interviewing Dr. William Forsham, an author of over 50 books, including One Second After, One Year After, and The Final Day, which discusses what an EMP attack, an electromagnetic pulse attack would look like on the United States coming from his view. And he's done a lot of extensive research into the concept of EMP. Dr. Forsham is a historian and a professor at a small college in a mountain town where this particular book takes place. And he went in, and you'll see during this interview, he went in and, and interviewed people in his town and what they felt uh, were the most important things as far as large-scale disaster. Now, as emergency managers, our history goes back to the civil defense days. And with FEMA being established by Jimmy Carter, it was specifically to work on responding to nuclear uh, attacks. And we're thinking more along like the traditional, you know, bomb hits the city and, and how do we respond to that and how to recover from that. And obviously FEMA morphed from that into doing all hazards approach. And I think taking the all hazard approach specifically associated with the EMP is not a bad, bad idea. But the difference is here is that we would be cut off specifically from communications and Maybe in larger towns like Los Angeles or New York or Chicago, whatever, the communications might be better. Who knows? Um, however, in the small rural areas, uh, definitely they would not be able to have the support that we would expect. So think about something like the Hurricane Katrina or Superstorm Sandy, where there would be no communication across the United States. And that's the concept here specifically associated with these books one second after all the way to the final day. I would like to discuss this a little bit more. So once you listen to the interview, if you could go down and, and give me your comments and your thoughts about this potential um, attack. When I interviewed him, this was prior to North Korea being in the news again regarding their potential threat to Guam uh, with a nuclear hit and doing a little bit more looking into what capabilities that the government feels that Korea has. They think they could hit San Diego and even going over the Arctic Circle into New York City. So... You know, these are some things that we have to think about and, and plan for specifically if we do get hit with the nuclear attack. If those of us that uh, grew up in the in the 70s and 80s and before uh, know that this is something that we were really concerned about, right, when we had the uh, MAD between us and the Soviet Union. And we thought after the Soviet Union fell, that area of the mutual assured destruction MAD would have been gone. Uh, but now with North Korea getting uh, their hands on, on nuclear bombs and the capabilities now of sending those uh, small devices with ICBMs or also with Iran having a nuclear capability. Do we and should we, and I think we should, start thinking about that in our planning uh, specifically. So again, uh, I'm going to let uh, Dr. Forsham kind of make the argument uh, for that and let me know at the end of this interview what you think regarding should we or should we not be worried about this? Or should we plan for this? And, you know, knowing that our infrastructure is kind of fragile right now, what do you think? So let's uh, get into the interview. 
And I'm here with William Fortune, the author of the smash hit One Second After. And in the emergency management world, uh, this book I know uh, has been, we've been talking about it. And he has two follow-up books after that one. And we're going to talk a little bit about his book. And, and I really want to get into the EMP aspect of it. So, uh, William, welcome to EM Weekly. How are you doing today? Uh, doing great. And uh, looking forward to chatting with you. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into writing about the EMP and, and your experience with it? We have to go all the way back to 2004. I was up in Washington, D.C., meet with my friend Newt Gingrich. At that time, Newt and I were working on a fiction series about the American Civil War. We were going to meet for a couple of days and plot out our next book. Just so happened that was the exact same day that the 2004 congressional report on EMP came out. Newt had attended some of that meeting, uh, was expressing, expressing frustration that the media had not picked up on it at all. We're chatting about it over dinner, and finally there's like a challenge is tossed out, and that is maybe what's needed is somebody to write a popular fiction book to start getting the word out. Shortly thereafter, Newt set me up to meet with Congressman Roscoe Bartlett, who's a real hero. He was the one that headed the commission, said the same thing to me, that the word is just not out there. I went home. I felt tasked with a job. It would take five years of uh, publishers uh, rejecting the book and back and forth. The book was finally published in 2009 and almost instantly became a New York Times bestseller. And today, the, the rest is men history. So... Uh, <laughs> That's the thumbnail version of a very long journey of five years. Yeah, I mean, you can tell when you when you read the book, there's a, there's a lot of detail in the book. And one of the things I really found interesting was I read the book just after we were doing some um, swine flu issues that we had here in mm -hmm. Southern California. And one of the conversations that we were having in the Emergency Operations Center with the city manager and the chief of police and county health and, and all those people and, on, on a round table was the idea of social distancing and when we might have to make that decision, if we had to make the decision. And social distancing, obviously, is when we're telling people they cannot go out to the movies. They can't do any public gathering. You know, so it's a really big deal because now you're suspending potentially First and Fourth Amendment rights. And uh -huh. that conversation happened. And when I was reading in One Second After, when the town got together, uh, the town um, elected officials and, and, and obviously some people who were kind of put in there because of their expertise. We're talking about food rationing and all this other kind of stuff that's occurring. I was like, wow, this is a real conversation that would happen in, in an EOC. And and I was that's that's the part that impressed me. Uh, and that was really quickly in the beginning of the book. And so from there, it just it just really did kind of hit home on, on how realistic that book was. So when you're doing your research, did you talk to people in emergency operations centers and stuff? Or I love getting this question. Well, part of that five-year journey from first, you know, let's, let's do the book. So... Can you bear with me for a two-minute answer? For sure. I wandered for about a year trying to get the book started, and I, I got caught in the Tom Clancy model. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we have a hero, the bad guys have three bombs, and one guy goes off, they stop the others. And then I had the gestalt. I was struggling with the book. I couldn't get it off center. And I'm sitting at a graduation ceremony. I teach at a small, wonderful Christian college here in North Carolina, Montreal College. You have 500 kids. You get to know every one of them. One of the reasons I love being there. And I'm sitting at the graduation ceremony, and it was like, wham. God slapped me on the side of the head. It was right about us, right about my town, right about my kids, right about the people I teach for, the community I live with. And by the way, the town of Black Mountain in my novel is a real place. So 
The very next day, I'm out interviewing. I live in a small town. I walk in on the chief of police, give him a call. Can I interview you? Mm -hmm. He's running down stuff I never thought of. One of the really telling ones for me was going to the pharmacy. Talking to our pharmacist for an hour. Also, autobiographical, my father was in a nearby nursing home. He was fighting out the last month of his life. Interviewing the director there, I presented her with the scenario. She was like, my God, my worst nightmare. So... I did a lot of interviewing from all the way up in Congress and Bartlett down to, you know, and I shouldn't say down to the people who would be on the front line. Mm-hmm. Your local police officer, your pharmacist, a nurse, doctor. How do you run a hospital with this? So that's where I got the data. And then it became frightfully easy to write the book. It was also very disturbing because I'm setting it in my hometown in the college <laughs> I worked at. Right. Yeah, there, there, there's an amusing side note here. I just had friends, well, I haven't seen in quite a few years, drop over and they were like, Hey, we just drove by up the spot where some bad guys got hung in your novel or <laughs> hanged or whatever. I'm like, the novel guy. <laughs> right. Oh, we took a picture of it. <laughs> <laughs> You do bring up a lot of good issues. One is with diabetes and drugs that are saving mm-hmm. lives every day that are, are no longer going to be there. And, you know, with the character in, in the book with your the daughter of your of your hero, you know, having the whole diabetic issue going on. And, and that's that's for sure true. But the other one that you brought up that I never really thought about in, in a large scale disaster, and I guess I did in the back of my mind, but just kind of brought it to the fore, was the idea of the psych issues and what do you do with the people that are on psych drugs, knowing that at some point they're going to be off of medication. And do you suspend their constitutional right to to free roaming around knowing that they're going to become a public safety issue at some point, whether they're schizophrenic or bipolar or whatever issues that they're fighting with and the drugs are keeping them stable. And that was a, we actually had a conversation among emergency managers based on your uh, on your book about what would we do, you know, here in in California if we had a large scale earthquake. Just not even you know something where we're nat- nationwide, but what do you do with those people if for six months they can't get a hold of their drugs? And so, what what made you bring that part of in the book? That came out of the pharmacist. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I live in a small town, so name was Elizabeth, and we're sitting there over a cup of coffee, and I presented with the question. She actually broke down in tears talking about it. <laughs> And it made me realize, you want to know the person who knows actually the intimate details the most about a, a town? It's your pharmacist, right. not a doctor. It's your pharmacist, but she's filling the prescription, and she's rattling off pancreatic enzyme disorder. Go off meds for a week, you're gone. Hmm. The number of people on pain medications, the number of people on heart medications, cancer medications. She raised the point. She said, in about 30 days, you would have somewhere between one-half to one percent of the population would be in a deeply psychotic, not neurotic, psychotic state. People who were institutionalized 60 years ago, now you just make sure they have a pill every day. Right. And add into that the stress, the fear, everything else, you're going to have uh, 5, 10 percent of the population that's going to be in a psychotic episode, and you got to deal with that, and yeah, what are the constitutional questions? Let me throw one more in. Talking with a friend who was a warden in a prison, I presented him with the question, what do you do? At the end of five days, when none of your employees, the guards are showing up, do you open up cells, tell these people, be nice, go home, or do you shoot? And he was like, well, I would let the nonviolent offenders go. I said, what do you do to the violent ones? Do you walk cell to cell, shoot them? And then like some bad Twilight Zone episode, just as, you, as you're done bumping off the 30 bad hombres in your, in your prison, the lights come back on, then what? Right. You know, a good way of looking at this is look what happened with Katrina, the stories about the one hospital where they started euthanizing some of the patients there, something people don't want to discuss. Another one was 50 elderly were found floating against the ceiling in the nursing home. Right. We as a society 
don't want to think about it. We're not prepared for it. We have no plan. It is a very frustrating issue. I do realize that we are definitely a fragile society. And if you think of Hurricane Sandy and you have the people that are eating out of the trash bins, and that was only, you know, a fairly short storm compared to a long-term issue, you know, mm-hmm. and you have people that were not ready and they were eating out of, they're eating rotting food out of the trash bins. And you talk about the fact that in your story and the crazy part about this is that you are set up into the local mountains where most people, and in this later book here, you, you kind of address that where the guy says, yeah, the skills I learned was when I skipped school and went hunting. That's a skill that's being used today. And he kind of makes fun of your history teacher and says, yeah, well, you know, what'd you learn from history? And they kind of banter back and forth about that. But that's so true because those of us that are now living in, in cities and stuff, I mean, they people would not know how to dress an animal or to even farm for that matter. The victory gardens are are very far and few in between and people are not prepared for that large scale long-term disaster. How long do you think based upon that, how long do you think and and your, with your research, do we have until we have societal collapse? Those type of things are based on human behavior, cyber attack, EMC, infrastructure collapse, financial collapse. Those are human behaviors. And as a historian, you start becoming pessimistic about human behavior collectively. There are even natural phenomena that are totally beyond our control, such as solar storms, things like that. It is inevitable. I pray, you know, you say, well, maybe not in my lifetime, but what about my daughter's lifetime? We have built the most stunning technological society. I mean, look at what we've accomplished in the last, since World War II. And it's very fragile. You just have to pull one little piece out of that, that paradise. That's electricity. Right. And everything goes into collapse. The nearest things we can compare to are Sandy, Katrina, big earthquakes. Those are regional. You know, the day after Katrina, my college was loading up big trucks to haul emergency supplies down. I mean, aid was coming in from all around the country. Well, suppose you have a nationwide event. Ain't going to be no aid. It's whatever you prepared for beforehand, all you're going to have afterwards. Mm-hmm. And we are woefully prepared for these things. Yeah, and I know that the prepper movement, for lack of a better term, was kind of uh, made fun of, I guess, a little bit during during when when the uh, History Channel was kind of doing the whole prepper thing. Oh, I I hated that doomsday prepper series. I despised it. Yeah, me too. I've talked with tens of thousands of preppers, and 99% of them are decent people, family people, community-oriented. They're not the nut jobs the TV focuses on. Sure, and this is what we preach as emergency managers, right? We have the community emergency response team. We want people to have two weeks worth of food and water and stuff at their home so they're ready for that disaster. But yet then when we you know, talk about the prepper, quote unquote, you know, everybody's like, oh, those crazy prepper people, you know, and isn't that it's kind of like a mixed message that we're sending the population, isn't it? It is. And I point out one particular newscast from Sandy, you know, and that's where I grew up. I grew up just on the Jersey side of New York, and so I knew a lot of people that were trapped in it. And I remember it was like Diane Sawyer. She's visiting a home, and the woman's crying. I have children, and we haven't had water for two days, and we don't have food, and da-da-da-da-da-da. And at the end, Diane Sawyer says, we made sure Mrs. Smith had five gallons of drinking water and three days of food. And I wanted to scream, lady, you had four days warning. Right. This was going to be a big one. You could have filled your bathtub with starters, take soda bottles, fill them up, get some canned food now. Do the basics. Don't stand there and wring your hands and scream, I'm a victim. 
survival 101, the stuff we used to learn in Boy Scouts. Right. <laughs> there, that point has to me just, we are such a society now of FEMA, come save me. Right. And then three days in the van, people are, are hysterical. Remember with Sandy? I mean, people waving $100 bills at McDonald's. Right. But the ATMs were down, and standing <laughs> two blocks long to get their cell phones recharged or get five gallons of gasoline to that generator that only runs for four hours. When did we as a nation stop being ready? Like, you think about World War II with the Victory Gardens, and, and my grandparents, and even my dad for that matter, he was, a, a, he was born in 1930. They all kind of always hoarded stuff, for lack of a better term, or, oh, you never know when you're going to need it. And, you know, our basement was full of stuff that, you know, you're like, what the heck is this here for? And you kind of address it in your in your new book with the computers and people just kind of toss them toss them away. When did we become that everything's disposable society? The answer to that question and more when we return from our break. Emergencies happen, whether they're related to medical emergencies, threats of physical violence, weather related, or other. One of the most difficult things during an emergency is to find help and quickly and efficiently communicate with all parties, regardless of whether you're an administrator, law enforcement, or the end user. With Titan HST, we help distort time by creating high-tech yet simple-to-use mobile-based applications that connect you with the people who can help you. At Titan HST, we believe in the power of people. 415, there is at least one person that's been shot. Somebody is still shooting inside. Are you ready for the unthinkable? Call our friends at High Speed TACMED. They provide custom emergency planning and training that saves lives. With years of experience in law enforcement, search and rescue, responding to, and managing large-scale incidents. HSTM will evaluate and prepare written plans, training sessions, drills, and debriefs leaving you with the necessary tools and experience that can save lives. Call HSTM today to discuss your specific needs, and the staff at High Speed TACMED will help ensure that you're ready and are in complete compliance. Call High Speed TACMED today at 805-419-0024. Again, that's 805-419-0024. The friendly staff at HSTM is standing by. Bring it up, bodies now. Get someone to the back as soon as you can. Rescue personnel. I got at least three to seven hits. Hi, this is Todd DeVoe from EM Weekly. If your company is in the emergency management and response space, EM Weekly is a place for you to advertise. Each week, we bring in experts in emergency management, response, and leadership from around the world, and they're here to share their best practices. Our listeners are eager to learn about new products and ideas, so this is the space for you. For more information, please contact Brian at brian at emweekly.com. When did we become that everything's disposable society? Well, we moved a couple of generations away from the Depression and World War II. Your dad was shaped by the Depression, as were my parents, and even me, born 20 years later. 
uh, the, the stuff in the base, the stories about, well, you never know. You never know when this is going to happen. And as a kid, you kind of laugh a bit, but you get older, you realize it. A very good illustration. I was head of admissions at a little boarding school up in Maine many years ago. Very upscale German industrialist who's being transferred to the United States. He visits our school. We're talking. At the end of the day, he's asking me, do you have vocational ed here? And I said, well, New England boarding schools, we don't. We're academic. He said, well, i got to find something with vocational ed. I said, what? He said, well, my father, he's this gentleman back in the 1980s, and my father was a professor, full professor at Heidelberg. There was no Heidelberg University in 1945. Hmm. But he had been a tenth like his father and his father before him. And he put the food on the table for my family for three years, taking tin cans out of garbage dumps and fashioning them into something useful. Hmm. And this guy went on to say, I want my son to have a skill that he can trade. Unless we had been through a period of real adversity, we disconnect. And that's that's the problem we as a society face today. I mean, what skills do I have as a historian or a writer? I joke a mob will come up my driveway screaming, he's the one, he wrote the book, he made it happen. <laughs> but in all seriousness, I don't necessarily have a skill. Therefore, I'm a prepper. Mm-hmm. I practice what Talk about the skill sets of people. When I was growing up in New York, in high school, we had a program where we could go to, they called it BOCES, I forget what it stands for, um, but it's a vocational mm-hmm. education program. And kids went to school to become printers, they went to school to become carpenters. Uh, there's an uh, LVN program, all that program was there. And when I came here to California, we have a program here in SoCal called, well, it was there, it's really kind mm-hmm. of been dismantled called ROP the regional occupational program where you could do the same thing and all those programs have gone away I mean I took wood shop and metal shop when I was in high school you can't even do those classes anymore I mean kids do not know how to work with their hands or or, or build anything any longer and I think it is detrimental to our society I think everybody's so geared on getting kids into college that they forget about the uh, vocational education programs and we're also so incredibly wired, the historian again that you're stuck with tonight. We've only been a instant communication society since the 1850s. Mm-hmm. Telegraphy came. Your great great grandfather was at Gettysburg and your great great grandma up in New Hampshire knew within a day or two what was happening. So prior to that, you walked out the door to go to war or go west or whatever. You were totally disconnected. We're not used We can't even conceptualize that now. My daughter lives up in Michigan. I can instantly contact her at any time. Think of the universal panic if we are totally disconnected from the news, what's happening, where's our family, where's our kids, where's our grandparents, where's the next meal coming from. All of it goes silent. The silence is what's going to trigger panic. True. Yeah. You're so right. It was especially with the fact of, I mean, think about it. When people go without their cell phone they're freaking out for a few hours you leave the cell phone behind and you turn around and you drive back 20 miles to get it and then you check it immediately who called while i was disconnected for 20 minutes (laughs) that's 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 how and i'm not pointing at a younger generation saying boy these kids like teach day i'm the same way if i go out the door and i don't have my cell phone i turn around and come back Yeah, I have uh, done that myself, you know. I teach as I teach as well. I teach emergency management at a local community college. Now we've moved everything to being online and I'm actually teaching mm-hmm. kids that are across the world because they're military contract students. I teach them across the world and and we're able to, to you know, email instantaneously and if I don't reply back to them within a day, they get, you know, they're like Oh, they're freaked. Yeah, they're freaked out. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, hey, hey, don't worry. You know, we're going to be okay. Uh, Just because it took me two days to return your email doesn't mean that I fell off the face of the planet, you know? 
Well, we're still wired. I had a very scary moment about five years ago. My, one of my closest buddies, his son, was severely wounded in Afghanistan. And he called me up to tell me. And it was, there was a lot of tears. We weren't sure how he was going to do for the first day or two. He literally talked to his son less than 30 minutes after he was dead. Wow. Yeah. They got him on the helicopter, got him back to base, and, okay, we have your dad's phone number, talk to him. And then he's talking to the doctor. The doctor's saying, this is the injury. We're going to see you back in Germany, and we will keep you posted. Think about that. Right. My God, the other end of the world, it shows how incredibly wired we are, what a gift it is. We have to think about how vulnerable it is and how easily it can collapse. I'm going to ask you an opinion question here, and specifically talking about North Korea. We're watching some of their missiles go up and fail, and there's a guy who I listen to uh, out here on the West Coast. His name's Brian Suits. He's a former Army guy, pretty intelligent man. He's he's on this local radio station out here. And mm-hmm. he was saying that maybe those failures that went up weren't necessarily failures. Were they testing the right uh, height that they needed to get to do oh, yeah. an EMP? Oh, yeah. What do you think? I urge folks to check out some of the material that's been written recently by Dr. Peter Fry, E-R-Y. He sent an article up today. James Wolsey, W-O-L-L-S-E-Y, former uh, director of the CIA. Uh, That scenario is very serious, that what our times defined as failures are, in fact, reality tests for EMP capability. Mm -hmm. The Iranians are doing it, and so is North Korea. We are staring into the barrel of the gun. We've been kicking the can down the road for 20 years with North Korea, and it's coming home to roost. I, I personally feel within a year we're going to see a military confrontation. This, this latest test, uh, which occurred well, on July 28th, is a frightful leap. And if you don't need precision guidance and deep reentry shielding on an ICBM. To pop an EMP, you just loft it over your opponent's territory and blow it. You're already capable of hitting us with a major EMP strike. This is real. This is like living in Europe in the summer of 1939. That's how I look at it. Wow. That's a a pretty dire... And we don't don't want to be in a dunk curve eight months later. (laughs) Right. Right. And it seems to be that people, when I mean people, I'm talking about the the regular everyday Joe, doesn't really either care or not pay attention or they're just too busy on their cell phones, you know, to, to know what's going on. Because if you bring this question up to people, they're just like, ah, yeah, whatever. Oh, I saw that in the news or, oh, I didn't even know they're doing that. You know, how, how do we get that message across to people that, that this is a serious deal? This is not child's play anymore. You're asking me a question I, I don't quite know the answer to. Mm. How do we get people to wake up? I mean, I know and any number of people besides me have been beating the drum for years. Yeah, I, I teach a course, World War One and World War Two. I'll start in three weeks. In the opening move of my very first class, I point out how many Americans died on the Western Front in 1918, which is now run the 100th anniversary. And then I present the question, how the hell, that's how I explain how the hell did the assassination of an archduke from the Austria, uh, you know, Hungarian Empire in a place called Sarajevo that nobody knew where it was, how did that assassination wind up with close to 100,000 Americans dying in Europe four years later? And millions of people dying, you know, English, German, French, Russian. It, it is surreal. You know, if I wrote it as a novel in 1912, people would have said, they're crazy. Because an archduke gets shot, the, the whole world goes into a war. Well, there are all these hair triggers back and forth between Russia and Austria and Germany. And one hair trigger kept popping after another. And we were suddenly in a global war, which, by the way, everybody said, oh, the boys will be home by Christmas. Don't worry about it. Right. 
Yeah. And then 20 years later, we have a repeat, World War II. Even bigger and better war. Yeah. World War II was really a, just a continuation of World War One, right? Right. Okay. Yeah, in fact, uh, I used to teach two separate courses, um, World War One and World War Two. And last year, I morphed them together into one class, and I actually call it the 30 Years War. Hmm. I mean, they really are just a continuum. So, as no matter how bizarrely impossible that seems, we should take that lesson and take it seriously. It can happen again. Yeah, I agree with you. If you think about what just happened with us with 9-11, that... It's Article Five, right, of the of the of NATO. That's why we mm-hmm. have everybody over in in Afghanistan and, and and Iraq as well, is because of Article Five, which is very similar to the stuff that happened for World War One, which created everybody to go into in, into that war as well. And yeah, I mean that that right there. If we have something where North Korea pops something off over even over Japan, we're going to be back into that situation where we're all going to be at war again. Do you? Am I wrong on that? I keep mentioning this. I got to look up the German word. You know, one of those long German words that goes for half a line. <laughs> uh, what, the, what the word essentially means is it's, it's a war the downward spiral of unpredictable violence. We don't bomb civilians. By actually something a mistake, German planes are about to bomb Rotterdam. They're supposed to be recalled. They bomb. Then German planes accidentally bomb London. So the British bomb Berlin. And then it's like, oh, we're really going to bomb you. And suddenly by 1945, we, the Americans, were popping nuclear weapons. Right. We're killing, we're killing 100,000 people in one night. Right. It's a downward, war is always a downward spiral of violence. So we look at North Korea now, well, gee, we can surgically strike and take this out in a heartbeat. Well, who's heartbeat? Right. Can we really do it? What's going to happen? These things can spin out of control. Your books, they're really telling, and you can tell for sure that you put the time and, and the effort into to making them as realistic as possible. What's next now after I haven't finished your <laughs> I haven't finished your last book, so I have to finish the, the last half of the, the of your last book. But what's next? What's going to be What's going to happen with that series? Uh, I'm not going to discuss it with you yet, other than to say. There's a great line from the Godfather movies where Michael Corleone in movie three, that famous line, every time I try to get out, they pull me back in again. <laughs> and then he, throws a stroke, he pops a stroke 30 seconds later. Right. I swore when I finished the third book, it's a very depressing topic. And to do the research and to do it right, it takes a lot out of you. Mm-hmm. I'm working on, let's just say I'm working on something related. And I'm having massive writer's block at the moment. I hope my publisher doesn't hear that. <laughs> but I should have a book out sometime, oh, mid or late next year. Okay. On, on something of a related military topic. Those of you who have not read these books, you, you need to get them. Um, you can get them um, Amazon, Audible, all those great places. You can you can find this book, uh, find all three of them. I highly recommend them. It's going to make you think. And as an emergency manager, I really think that this book is you you captured what we do at least in the first book uh, really well. And the, the process of, of recovery, and that's the part that's what I teach is throughout this last two books is recovering uh, from these disasters and, and making everybody whole again if that's ever possible after a large scale event. So, sir, I've had you for a bit here, and and I don't want to keep your keep you any longer here, but I do have one question for you outside of your books because I already recommended them what book do you recommend to somebody in emergency management to really get a grasp on the EMP issue wow first of all read the congressional reports of 2004 and 2008 
secondly, uh, I think Ted Koppel would have both liked that, did an incredibly good job. People might disagree with Ted Koppel on some other things, but he did a very good book called Lights Out. Next, I'm going to throw a political pitch in here. Uh, I urge anyone who takes this seriously to look up H.R. 2417, House Bill 2417. It's being cycled through for the third time. And in spite of all the gridlock in D.C., I want to believe this bill is going to get through. It authorizes uh, the president to start pushing for infrastructure buildup and infrastructure security. Mm. And it's been shot down twice because of a Congress, a member of the Senate from Alaska, who the bill didn't have what she wanted for purse for her state. Uh, hopefully this time it won't be killed. H.R. 2417. Look it up. You can get it online. You can read it. It's, it's government ease. But really, I, I urge emergency managers, take a good look at the congressional reports of 04 and 08. That's the hardcore stuff. I've actually read that. It's uh, pretty intense. If anybody is trying to look up about you and, and your books, how could they find the information on your uh, on your books? My wife's revising my website. Gosh. We're talking about the infrastructure security issues. Right away, I'm talking about a website. I think it's onesecondafter.com. It's, it's all one word. You can do that or just go on Amazon, punch my name in Amazon, or even go to YouTube, punch my name in there. And you know, I've done a lot of talks, and I, I keep trying to get the word out there. I was an Eagle Scout. So we've drilled into this. Be prepared. Awesome. Well, sir, thank you so much for, for being here. And everybody, thank you for listening to uh, our podcast here at EM Weekly. And if you uh, have time, check out, uh, or if you could, go to your um, iTunes and give us a review. Check out One Second After. If you haven't read this series, start right there. Uh, it's a it's a really page turner. I'll tell you, if you if you buy the book, you'll, you'll have it done. If you buy the book today and you get it uh, by Amazon, you'll have it done by the weekend because you're not going to want to put it down. One year after is the, is the is the next book and and the final day. Those books right there. The final day is, is uh, it was funny because somebody put a, compl- not a complaint, but a criticism of the book and I was talking about how the main character cries a lot and rightfully so because if you don't, if you're if you're that hard of a heart that you can't have that emotion you know, due to all the loss you just had, uh, you're not a human being. So it's definitely uh, it's definitely going to be a little bit more emotional than the other books, but man, I tell you, it's so worth uh, listening or, or reading those books. So uh, so get them at your local place. William, again, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for a great interview. I really appreciate it. Thanks for getting the word out there about the issue.